Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Sarah Chaffee. This episode is a real treat. An excerpt from Discovery Institute's intelligent design documentary, Revolutionary. It's been more than a decade since the judge handed down his decision in the Dover Intelligent Design trial. At the time, mainstream media told the world one story about the trial. Now, Revolutionary tells the rest of the story. Today, the small town of Dover in southeastern Pennsylvania looks peaceful. But in 2004, it became the battleground for a bitter conflict that attracted attention from around the world. The conflict arose after the Dover Area School District required the reading of a short statement about evolution in high school biology classes. The statement told students that Darwin's theory had gaps and continues to be tested as new evidence is discovered. It further announced that there was a view that differed from Darwin's theory called intelligent design. And if students wanted to learn more about it, they could read a book that had been placed in the school library. The statement concluded by encouraging students to keep an open mind when it came to any scientific theory. On its face, the Dover Statement did not seem to be the stuff that epic battles are made of. Supporters of Darwin's theory, however, were furious. They insisted that reading the statement was equivalent to the state endorsing religion. The ACLU eventually filed suit, alleging that the Dover policy was unconstitutional. This board acted with a clear and unconstitutional purpose. The case was assigned to Federal District Court Judge John Jones. A former trial lawyer and head of the state's Liquor Control Board, Jones had a long career in party politics. Most judges tried to stay out of the limelight, but Judge Jones made himself readily available for media interviews. He even speculated about a future film version of the trial, telling reporters he hoped Hollywood star Tom Hanks would play him on the big screen. At the same time, Judge Jones expressed interest in an earlier movie. Judge Jones told one reporter he planned to watch the 1960 film Inherit the Wind to supply him with historical context for the case. Inherit the Wind was a highly fictionalized account of the Scopes Monkey Trial of the 1920s, where high school teacher John Scopes was prosecuted for violating a Tennessee law banning the teaching of human evolution. Historians have argued that Inherit the Wind reduced history to blatant stereotypes, portraying the debate over Darwin's theory as a stick-figure battle between bigoted fundamentalists and open-minded scientists. It was a strange film to watch for someone who is supposed to be impartial. The key legal issue presented in the Dover case was the limited question of whether the school board acted with a non-religious purpose but lawyers on both sides wanted to expand the focus to place intelligent design itself on trial. Living a little more than a hundred miles away from Dover, Michael Behe had mixed feelings about the case. He was interested in science, not politics, but the ACLU was trying to place his scientific argument for intelligent design on trial. So Behe agreed, reluctantly, to serve as an expert witness in order to defend his ideas. 
the bacterial flagellum soon became the trial's poster child as ACLU attorneys tried to undermine Behe's credibility. Their first expert witness was Brown University biologist Kenneth Miller. I don't think it's a valid scientific theory. I don't think it's good education, and I don't think it has any place in the classrooms in Dover. Miller challenged Behe's claims about the flagellum head-on. He explained that molecular machines like the flagellum could have been built by natural selection from pre-existing components that originally had different functions. Miller then announced to the court that he had developed a test that would conclusively prove whether the flagellum was irreducibly complex. Dr. Behe's prediction is that the parts of any irreducibly complex system should have no useful function. Therefore, we ought to be able to take the bacterial flagellum, break its parts down, and discover that none of the parts are good for anything, except when they're all assembled in a flagellum. If Dr. Behe is correct, if we take away even one part, there should be no function. The flagellum is built out of proteins, and for his test, Miller said he would propose taking away not just one or two proteins from the flagellum, but 30. If Behe were right, surely taking away so many parts of the flagellum should leave it completely non-functional. Miller then dropped his bombshell. When the 30 proteins are removed, the remaining 10 proteins are not without function. Instead, they reveal something called the type 3 secretion system. In some other bacteria, this secretion system forms a simpler needle complex, a molecular syringe used to inject toxins into a host organism. For Miller, the type 3 secretion system needle complex supplied a definitive refutation of Behe's claims about the flagellum. It showed that evolution could have built the flagellum by co-opting a pre-existing simpler system. Later, Behe himself took the stand and offered a detailed refutation of Miller's claims. Behe argued that Miller had misrepresented his idea of irreducible complexity. Behe did not claim that when one part of an irreducibly complex system is removed, the remaining parts could have no function. Instead, he argued that when one part is removed, the system as a whole no longer functions. In the case of the flagellum, if you take away one of its key parts, the system doesn't operate at all as a propulsion system. As for Miller's proposal that the flagellar motor could have evolved from pre-existing parts with other functions, Behe responded that this scenario, while logically possible, was highly improbable. It relied on the assumption that natural selection could co-opt existing parts and redeploy them to create the flagellum motor. There are some examples where I think such a thing can happen, but that's not going to help in irreducibly complex systems like, again, the flagellum. Suppose you said, I want to build a mousetrap and I'll go into the garage and try to co-opt some old things that I find there uh, for use in the new mousetrap. And you see that a mousetrap needs a spring and in your garage you have an old clock. So you pull out a spring from that. And you see that the mousetrap has a, a metal bar and you've got a crowbar in your garage. And you see that it's got another metal piece, the hammer, and you've got you know, the fender of a bicycle. Well, you can't make a mousetrap from all those pieces because they have been fit for their other roles. 
and they will not work as pieces of mousetrap unless they are extensively reworked or refitted, and that, of course, is intelligent design. Even under a Darwinian view, you would not expect pieces to be laying around that would be fit for roles in other complex systems because you would expect natural selection to shape them very tightly to the role that they are currently fulfilling. And so to be used for something else, they would have to be reshaped, retooled before being used. And then you have the problem with irreducible complexity all, all over again. But what about Miller's bombshell, the type 3 secretion needle complex? Didn't that prove that the flagellum had evolved from a simpler structure through undirected natural selection? Behe had a surprise of his own. He pointed out that a number of evolutionary biologists actually thought the needle complex had evolved after the flagellum. And if the needle complex arose after the flagellum, there is no way it could have been used by the evolutionary process to build the flagellum. In fact, it was possible that the needle complex actually devolved from the flagellum. But if that's the case, you know, that doesn't help Darwinian evolution at all because, uh, you know, having a fantastic machine which degrades to give a simpler machine is, is not an impressive example of, of the power of Darwinian evolution. That might be compatible with intelligent design. It's certainly incompatible uh, with Darwin's theory, or at least it, it doesn't help it at all. But there was an even more fundamental problem with Miller's hypothesis, according to Behe. Even if the needle complex had existed before the flagellum, that fact alone did nothing to show how it could have been transformed into the flagellum by natural selection acting on random genetic changes. It's not enough for advocates of co-option to identify a single possible intermediate structure. Instead, they must show that a series of intermediate structures existed that could have maintained some function at each stage in the evolutionary process. But in the case of the bacterial flagellum, experimental evidence casts doubt on that idea. In the final days of the trial, Behe's testimony was backed up by another biologist named Scott Minnick. A microbiology professor at the University of Idaho, Minnick had conducted lab research on the flagellum. The year before, Minnick had come out in the scientific community as a supporter of intelligent design. He co-authored a paper for a scientific conference with philosopher of science Stephen Meyer. In the paper, Minnick and Meyer argued that the flagellum was best explained by intelligent design. As Minnick told the court, his decision to submit the paper had been a difficult one. At the time, he was in Iraq as a member of the Iraq Survey Group, searching for biological and chemical weapons for the U.S. government. Things had begun to deteriorate in terms of the military situation at that time. We had a deadline to get this paper submitted. It was looking at the flagellum as an argument for irreducible complexity and in intelligent design. Stephen made his final edits. I had made mine. I was in the top of the Perfume Palace in one of Saddam's complexes near the airport, this large dome structure up on the top floor. And the deadline was midnight in London to get this paper in to participate. And I was hesitating, you know, do I really want to do this? What are the consequences? I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be able to support my family. I was alone up there with one other 
young military, I think it was a corporal, and just then a mortar round went off. I estimated that it was about 300 meters away. That catches your attention. I mean, it's a pretty loud explosion. But then another one came in a few seconds later, and this one was much closer, probably about 200 meters we were estimating. And then another one came in. Whoever it was were walking these rounds right towards, you know, the Perfume Palace. And so then I said, well, you know, I may not be here tomorrow. Boom, I hit the send button and it was done. Minnick's decision to testify at Dover proved to be personally costly. There were people in my university, I don't know who they were, but they went to the president, complained. They went to the University of Washington where I had affiliate status because I teach medical students through the University of Washington system in Idaho, trying to get me fired, saying I was incompetent if I believed in this stuff. Nobody asked me ever what I believed. I never taught this in the classroom, but I ended up getting censored. On the witness stand, Minnick reiterated the evidence that the type 3 secretion needle complex had developed after the flagellum. He also challenged co-option scenarios as highly speculative and biologically implausible. But in the end, it didn't matter. A few days before Christmas, Judge Jones issued his ruling. He didn't just strike down the Dover school policy as unconstitutional. In a blistering 6,000-plus word critique, he also concluded that intelligent design was not science. Thank you, Judge Jones. This is an absolutely thrilling decision. Many scientists and the news media lavished praise on the judge. Time magazine featured him on its cover as one of the world's most influential people in the category of scientists and thinkers. PBS later staged an elaborate reenactment of the trial for its documentary titled Judgment Day, Intelligent Design on Trial. The documentary showcased the type 3 secretion needle complex, which was depicted as devastating evidence against Behe's argument for intelligent design. Behe and Minnick's detailed responses at the trial were conveniently left out. For many people, certainly those in the media, the case for intelligent design of the flagellum now appeared dead, killed by an impartial federal judge. It didn't take long for that assessment to begin to unravel. The part of Kitzmiller that finds intelligent design not to be science is unnecessary, unconvincing, not particularly suited to the judicial role, and even perhaps dangerous to both science and to freedom of religion. Professor Jay Wexler, Boston University School of Law. More questions were raised when critics did a detailed analysis of Judge Jones' critique of intelligent design and made an astonishing discovery. More than 90% of Judge Jones' analysis of intelligent design was basically cut and pasted from uh, legal documents given to him by lawyers working with the ACLU right down to the factual errors in their briefs. So when they would misquote someone like biochemist Michael Behe, uh, he would misquote Michael Behe with the same misquote because he didn't even bother to go back to the record to re-verify the quotes. He just cut and pasted. But perhaps the most revealing development involved the bacterial flagellum. 
During the trial, attorneys challenging the school district confidently assured Judge Jones that the flagellum was easy to explain in Darwinian terms. However, just a year later, one of the scientists who had advised the ACLU in the case co-authored an article in a science journal that made a startling admission. Attempting again to refute Behe's ideas, the article conceded that the flagella research community has scarcely begun to consider how these systems have evolved. In the years after Dover, it became clear that the answers offered by Darwin supporters during the trial were not enough to silence questions being raised by scientists like Behe. The controversy over new scientific challenges to Darwin was continuing to spread, not only in America, but around the world. To hear and see the full documentary, along with the film's cutting-edge animation of the bacterial flagellum, and interviews with Behe, Minnick, Meyer, and others, order the film at www.revolutionarybehe.com. For ID the Future... I'm Sarah Chaffee. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2016. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org or idthefuture.com. <laughs>